be to me one of the greatest hymns ever written. If that doesn't get your blood pressure up, nothing will, for sure. I thought I would start today by telling you something about this guy that stands before you today. I think you need to know who's speaking to you. Well, I was born in the great metropolitan complex of Transylvania, Louisiana, which is a curve in the road in the northeast Louisiana Delta. I uh, grew up on a farm, born in a little brown house out in the cotton field. Went off to college at LSU, so I'm, I'm really happy today because LSU won, where I got a degree in engineering. I'm a civil engineer. And from there, I went in the Air Force, served my time, got out and went to work for one of the oldest and most pre prestigious bridge engineering firms in the United States and immediately started working on my master's degree. When I completed that, I felt that God was calling me to perhaps a different way to serve him. I wasn't quite sure, so I started attending the seminary in New Orleans because I was working in New Orleans at that time. About one-third of the way through that program, I got a call from my major professor for my master's degree and says, I've got the perfect research project for a doctorate. So I prayed about it, and I thought, well, maybe God, since I wasn't looking to do this, is telling me that he wants me to take a different path. So I accepted, stopped going to seminary, got my doctorate, and my company that I'd taken a leave of absence from says, we want you to go to New York to head up our operations in the Northeast. And I thought, New York? That's a far cry from the cotton fields of northeast Louisiana. But I decided to do it. Found myself the only Southern Baptist church in the Hudson River Valley for, I don't know, 60 or 70 mile radius, and began to serve there. After a while, the pastor left, a number of years later, and since I was chairman of the deacons at the time, they asked me if, well, I, would I do most of the preaching? Well, that led to me becoming eventually licensed to preach. Well, we found a great pastor, and he stayed on another stretch. By the way, that took three years to find a pastor. They're not people lining up to go to New York to be pastors. And so after a stretch of time, we lost that pastor. And so this time they asked me if I would be a bivocational interim, in a sense, while they looked for a pastor, and I agree, that eventually led to me being ordained to the gospel ministry. So you, I tell you all that for only one reason, and that is the path that God places before us is rarely, if ever, the one we think it's going to be. When he calls us to be a disciple, he calls us to begin that journey. So I'm going to talk to you today and provide you five illustrations of a real disciple. And the text is going to be Luke in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now, if you might recall, one of the last things that Jesus told his disciples was to go ye therefore and do what? To make disciples. That is the main job, one of the main jobs that Jesus gave us to do. 
There is a difference, however, between a believer and a disciple. There is no such thing as an instant disciple. If you look at the root word, the Latin word from which we get disciple, it's the same word that we get discipline. The two are related. You know, there was a Russian comedian at one time, you may have heard of him, his name was Yakov Smirnov, and he talks about when he first moved to the United States, and he went to the grocery store for the first time, he's walking down the aisle, and he saw milk powder, just add water, and you have milk. Walked a little further down, and he saw orange juice powder, and he just add water. And you have orange juice. Then he walked into this aisle and it had baby powder. And he thought, what an amazing country. All you do is add water. And you have babies. Well, you know, it takes more than water to make a disciple. Disciples don't just instantly come into being. Now, as we read in, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus was getting closer and closer to the cross. People wanted to see a miracle or have a free meal, and this crowds were all about him and surrounding him. But that crowd is about to be reduced in number because he is going to lay on them the cost of discipleship. It's not a popular message because it's a message that requires total commitment. You may have heard the story about the old the hen and and the hog. On the farm, they overheard the <clears throat> they overheard the farmer, <clears throat> excuse me, talking to his wife about the plans the church had to feed the hungry. So the old hen turns to the hog and says, "Maybe there's a way we can help." And so the hen says, "You know what? We're going to have a ham and eggs breakfast for the for the church, and they can feed the hungry." Well, the old hog thought about that for a while, and says, "Now wait a minute." That only requires a donation on your part. It's a whole different level of commitment for me. Being a disciple requires a whole level of commitment. So in our passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to give us five images and use each one to teach us a lesson about discipleship. So before we read it, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the beauty of this day, for your manifold blessings that you just constantly shower upon us. And I pray that we would always be aware of those blessings and honor and glorify your name because of them. And Father, I also pray that each of us would examine our lives and to see exactly what type of disciples we are to be and if we are truly being the disciples you have called us to be. All of this we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. So Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. And as I read this, by the way, I'm going to number the five illustrations. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's Mark number one. And anyone who does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's Mark number two. 
Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Mark number 3. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Mark number 4. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. That's Mark number 5. He who has ears, let him hear. You know, people choose to relate to Jesus in different levels of intimacy. It's kind of like concentric circles. If I'd known you guys had a projector here, I would have brought an illustration. But imagine concentric circles. And the on, on the outside of there, you have what I would just call the crowd. And this is kind of like the mob that was following Jesus. They knew who he was, but they would soon be gone. Today, the people in this country who express some modicum of interest in Jesus represent this crowd. But they seldom ever worship with other believers. It's kind of like when I was in New York after 9-11. The churches were filled. Where are they now? They're not in the churches. I'm disappointed to say. A deeper level of commitment as we move inside our concentric circles here is the congregation. These are people that do attend church on some type of regular basis, or in other words, they congregate, and hence the name. But it's that they're not really active members of any church. In fact, some people have labeled these people church shoppers. I think they're more like church hoppers. They're kind of like the butterfly that kind of flits from one flower to the next. They never really deeply commit themselves to Jesus. We move on down to the next circle, and this is the church. And this circle represents those who have affiliated with a local church, and they have a a deeper relationship to the Lord. But there's even the deepest level of commitment here, a deeper level of intimacy. These are the ones within the church who are the real disciples. They are radical Christians. They are sold out to Jesus. But like in so many organizations in our church, only about 20% of the people do 80% of the work and contribute 80% of the financial demands of the church. But those people that do, that's the committed core. So which circle are you in today? Where would you like to be? The job of, of being a disciple is to become part of that core committed group, and then you are to move out 
to those other circles, to the world around you. That's what Jesus called us to do. So as we look at these illustrations of what it means to be a real disciple, let's first note the image that Jesus uses, and then I'll dig into the meaning of his words. So let's look at that Mark 1, or that illustration 1. He talks about a family. The first image he uses is a family. Are you somewhat surprised when Jesus uh, said that to be a disciple, you must hate your family? Now, I read about one pastor who entitled his message about this particular text, How to Hate Your Wife. You know, I wouldn't, wouldn't go there with that for sure. And I can tell by your reaction you wouldn't either. Because um, doesn't, why does, why does he use this term? Doesn't Jesus tell us in other places where to love our enemy, to love others? But yet here he seems to be saying we are to hate our family. Well, Bible commentators usually explain this in one of two ways. One is, well, he's using hyperbole. You know, he uses similes, he uses metaphors, he uses parables. This is hyperbole. You remember hyperbole, of course, is uh, really exaggerating a point, uh, an issue to make your point. My wife uses hyperbole all the time, by the way. You know, she says, you know, I've told you to pick up your dirty socks a million times. What she hasn't, maybe a half million, but not a million. So we shouldn't get upset if Jesus is reusing hyperbole. But I'm telling you, I don't really think that's what he's doing. And let me tell you why. It's because the word that's used here is the Greek word sane. And what it really means is to prefer above. And one, and one of the reasons I think the translators use the word hate is because it carries with it the idea, I believe, of preferring way above. So how do you come up with an English word that says that, you know, Jesus is so far high, should be so high above? Well, they use the word hate. And it does make, to some degree, the right picture. So to be a disciple, you must love Jesus more than anyone else. Prefer above, even your own family members. Your love of Jesus should be so powerful that in, that in comparison, it seems that you hate everyone else. That's the degree of difference of the love. You know when a Muslim comes to know Jesus and accepts him as the Lord and his Savior, he is making a statement that is so costly because when it happens and he's baptized, his family doesn't just disown him. They have a funeral. He is dead. So you see what, he's, what, that, what he does when he makes that profession of faith. He's making that preference of Jesus so much higher than his own family. And by the way, if you are truly a follower of the Lord, you don't have to look for people to ridicule you. They're going to find you. You can count on it. So it's just a fact. And some of those very well might be your own family members. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You notice he said the same, different, the same thing there, but using this concept of loving to a greater degree. 
there were two people, two, two women named Her, Heather Mercer and Dan Curry, and they were arrested by the Taliban a number of years ago. Now they spent 128 days detained by the Taliban, and they had both made the decision that they were going to surrender their lives to serving the Lord through Christian work, nonprofit type work. Well, Dateline decided to do a, kind of a story about them, and they quickly began to realize that Heather's mother was absolutely against her going to Afghanistan. You know what mother really would, you know? But Dateline was really harping on this fact that she did it in spite of the wishes of her mother, and this drive to serve the Lord was actually dividing the family. And this, by the way, is what Jesus meant in verse 26. In her book, Prisoners of Hope, Heather wrote this, and I quote, We answered hard questions posed by our families and friends. Extraordinary are the parents who don't balk at the idea of their child moving to a third world war-ravaged, drought-stricken country, and in this case, a country serving as a hub for international terrorist activity that we had decided to go as Christian aid workers to a country where a harsh, unpredictable regime severely curtailed religious freedom, gave most of our loved ones pause at best, and otherwise prompted serious alarm. We were asked, aren't you being foolish? Why would you jeopardize your own safety? End quote. Friends, when God calls you, you have to make some difficult decisions. And sometimes your family is not going to jump up and down when you make those decisions. This is the first mark of a disciple. The next example he gives us, he uses the image of the cross. A real disciple is someone who carries his cross. You know, when I was a little fellow in a little country church there in Transylvania, we used to sing a song that had a little phrase in it that said, The cross I bear. Well, in my childhood hearing, what I heard was the cross-eyed bear. And I remember sitting there, I hope if I ever I'm in the woods, that I'd run into a cross-eyed bear where, you know, he wouldn't be able to see me very well. Well, many Christians are just as confused today about what it means to carry the cross. I had someone tell me, I have migraine headaches. That's the cross I bear. One guy even took his shoe off one time and showed me his big old swollen toe and said he had an ingrown toenail, but that's the cross I bear. Well, folks, the cross we bear is not a headache, and it's not a big, sore toe. It's much more than there. Today, the image of the cross has lost its horror. The true message of the cross is death. Many of you perhaps today are wearing a cross, or perhaps you have a cross on your Bible. Well, you know, that's nice. But what if the local book, local Christian bookstore or wherever you get your publications were to start selling little miniature models of an electric chair? Would you wear one? Or what if someone made a syringe of poison and started offering it in a, as jewelry to wear? Can't you hear one, someone coming up to you and saying, I love your electric chair. Where'd you get it? Or if you're telling someone, hey, have you seen my Liz... Claiborne lethal injection syringe. Today the cross has become a kind of benign, a harmless piece of jewelry. 
In Jesus' time, it was a horrible, agonizing, torturous mode of execution. It was the noose, the electric chair, the lethal injection of its day. In the time of Jesus, when you saw someone carrying their cross, you knew they were as good as dead. A few years ago, Sister Ellen Prejean, down in Louisiana, wrote a book called Dead Men Walking. Now that phrase came from when an inmate was walking from his holding cell to the place of execution. All the other prisoners would say, dead man walking. That's a perfect description of what Jesus meant when he spoke of a disciple carrying his cross. We are dead people. We should just start acting like dead people. Now, I know that's got you confused right now, that last phrase, but bear with me. Paul understood what it meant to carry a cross. In Galatians, he gives us three wonderful verses about what it means to carry your cross. In 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In 5.24, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. Then in 6.14, he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That means there's nothing this world has to offer you that interests you. It's as if the world is dead to is is dead to you, and you are dead to the world. Years ago, there was a pastor named Bud Robinson, and he visited Manhattan. And so he toured all of Manhattan there and he saw all the tall buildings, the bright lights and all the temptations that the city has to offer. And he was leading a church service that night and he prayed the following prayer. Dear Lord, I thank thee that I have seen all these wonderful things today. But I also thank you that I didn't see a single thing I wanted For a disciple carrying a cross, the world cannot offer a single thing that we want. One of the classic books on discipleship is a book that is called The Cost of Discipleship, and it was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during World War II, and because he opposed Hitler and the Nazis, he was thrown into prison. And in fact, at one point, Hitler sent him a message and asked Bonhoeffer, are you with me or are you against me? Eight days before Hitler killed himself in his bunker, he had Bonhoeffer executed. This is what Bonhoeffer wrote in his book. The cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We, go, we give over our lives to death. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ 
When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die, end quote. In many ways, a dead man is set free. You won't be truly liberated until you understand what it means to be crucified with Christ. The third image he gives us here is a tower. He presents an image of a man who plans on building a tower of some kind. What it is is immaterial. But before he begins construction, he must count the cost to see if he has enough resources to finish the job. Jesus here is talking about the cost of total commitment. A good finish as a disciple is the key. You got that? A good finish is the key. A lot of backslidden Christians are likely to go to heaven when they die, but they're not going to be finishing well. In verse 29, Jesus spoke about the man who was not able to finish. Jesus says everyone will look at that incomplete project and ridicule the one who didn't finish it. I'm kind of haunted by these words. I don't want to become a spiritual dropout. When I was a young boy, we were still living up in the, in the Delta. My older brother was living in Texas. And we would drive through a little town that was called Lacapoca. All of you know where that is, right? Well, it's right near not a Suga. So now that we've got that established. But there's one image about driving through that town that's always is buried into my mind. Is as you came into the edge of town, there was a concrete block shell of a church. The roof trusses were in place. There was no roof on the building at all. Trees and shrubs you could see through the doors that weren't there and the windows that weren't there growing in literally like this space before us. In fact, there was one pine tree that had to be 15 or 20 feet high. One, I will probably never know the story of exactly what happened to this church. But to everyone that passed by that uncompleted building, it preached a sermon. Someone started this, but they didn't count the cost, and they weren't able to finish. There's great value in finishing what you start. You know, the the older I get, and that seems to be happening at a remarkable speed, I realize there can never be any coasting in the Christian life. There is no such thing as spiritual retirement. And folks, I'll tell you, you're not going to find any scripture in the Bible that talks about retiring from the service of God. It ain't there. So I'll save you the trouble. You don't have to look. It's not there. The pages of the Bible are littered, though, with great men and women who didn't finish well. Noah and his family were... Saved by the flood. But Noah got drunk. He ended up a drunken man that got naked and cursed his son. Solomon was the wisest man in all of history. But he didn't finish well. His many wives turned his heart from God. So are you going to finish well? I'm sure you know some folks who used to be perhaps faithful servants here. Real disciples, but they've dropped out. Oh, they might still attend sometimes, and I suppose they will go to heaven when they die. 
But unless something changes, they're not going to finish strong. They're like the church building in Locopoca. The good news is that none of you out here are finished yet. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. You can still finish well. The finish line is still ahead of you. Are you sitting down in the race in the middle of the track here? Are you going to barely drag yourself across the finish line? Or are you going to summon God's strength so that you can sprint across the finish line? You know, Billy Sunday was Billy, the, kind of the Billy Graham of his particular generation. I don't know if you know that, but Billy Sunday used to be a professional baseball player. So a lot of his sermons use baseball illustrations. He once said this, and I quote, Stopping at third base adds no more to the score than striking out. It doesn't matter how well you start if you fail to finish, end quote. A real disciple finishes strong. The fourth image he gives us is of two kings. One is outnumbered, so he wisely approaches the stronger king to make peace before the battle begins. You and I are one of the kings, and God is the other. Guess which one we are, okay? In case you have trouble with that, we're the weaker ones, okay? Because we can never win against God, we must surrender to Him. In Jesus' time, surrendering a surrendering king could be made into a slave by the opposing king. So it required a great deal of humility to bow down and ask for terms of peace. It takes humility today to surrender to Jesus. You cannot be a disciple unless you're willing to give up control of your life to Jesus. And that's hard to do. That's true. None of us want to give up. We want to be in control. I once read about a lifeguard on a beach, and as he sat out there, he saw a man that's obviously in trouble. He's beginning to drown. So he hops down off his stand, he runs, and he stands in the water, and he just watches him. And all the people on the beach are yelling and screaming at him, go save him, go save him. But he just stands and he watches him. Then he wades a little bit deeper. And the crowd is really getting upset at this point. So finally, the man goes into the water with his strong strokes, gets the man as he's about to go down for the last time, brings him back to shore, and after a little coughing and sputtering, he recovers. But the crowd says, you're a coward. You saw he was drowning. Why didn't you go out sooner? The lifeguard patiently explained to them, You can see that this man is much bigger than I am, and he's much stronger than I am. If I'd gone out sooner when he was kicking and thrashing, he would have ended up drowning both of us. As long as he was trying to save himself, I couldn't save him. But when he got tired, he gave up. Then I knew I could save him. There's a great lesson here about salvation. As long as you think you are strong enough to save yourself, you won't surrender to Jesus. There's a great book called The End of Me. 
and one guy in the whole premise of the book is where do you find Jesus when you reach the end of me? We always want to depend on me, but we have to surrender to Jesus. It's only when you give up and realize you are helplessly lost that Jesus can rescue you. Have you ever come to a place in your life where you have to surrender everything you have? Or I should say, or have you come to a place in your life where you have come to the realization that you have to surrender your whole life to Jesus? You have to say, Jesus, I give up. I give up control of my life. I think one of the reasons that the psalmist speaks of lifting your hands in praise is because lifting the hands has always been a gesture of surrender. Even today, the police say, raise your hands as a sign of surrender to Jesus, uh, to surrender. Have you surrendered to Jesus? I didn't ask you if you were a Christian, you noticed. I asked you, did you surrender, have you surrendered to Jesus? I have found that I have to surrender to Jesus very often. Maybe you need to do what I do on a regular basis. I get on my knees and I raise my hands and say, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Finally, don't you love that word? Finally, the fifth image that he gives to us is about salt. Salt was extremely valuable in Jesus' day. In fact, I don't know if you know it, but part of Roman soldiers' pay was in salt. And it was called the Solarium Argentums in Latin. It's from where we get our word salary. It had great value. Even today, we speak of someone as being not worth their salt. That's the origin of this. In the time of Jesus, the greatest value of salt was, as we used it when I was a kid, to preserve meat. Because, see, salt has a preserving effect. It kept the meat from rotting. The salt creates a chemical reaction that slows down the process of decay. It retards corruption. So as a consequence, it preserves the goodness of the meat. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? We live, and I think all of us here would agree with this statement, we live in a nation suffering from moral decay at an alarming rate. Our society is getting more rotten every day. Like salt, we must come in contact with a corrupting culture to slow down the process of decay. Our job is to preserve the goodness that still exists in culture, and there is still good by far in our culture. We must be the ones who speak up. If we don't speak out against moral evil, then we've lost our saltiness. Now, that kind of activity is not going to make us popular with our culture. Salt irritates. But in addition to being a preservative, it's also an antiseptic. And our culture needs a good cleaning, for sure. 
We must be salt in a corrupting world. If we don't speak up against evil, our nation will become even more perverse than it is now. But the problem Jesus identifies is that some people have lost their saltiness. Now, it was a long time ago that I took chemistry, but I know that a pure salt crystal that's 10,000 years old is just as salty as it was 10,000 years ago. Pure salt never loses its saltiness. That's why we must stay pure. The salt used in Jesus' time wasn't mined, like they mined in South Louisiana in the salt domes here. It came from the Dead Sea through evaporation. And when the water evaporated, what was left was the, quote, salt. But there's also a lot of other minerals in the Dead Sea. And sometimes you'd get salt that, well, it just wasn't salty. It wouldn't preserve meat. It wouldn't do anything it was intended to do. And so Jesus basically posed the question, if salt, because they would say it's lost its saltiness, he says, if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now today, believe it or not, we could make it salty again, but they couldn't in those days. So it was worthless. It was only fit to be used as gravel on the roadway. Sadly, many believers live such impure lives that they have lost the sense of saltiness in this rotting world. If you've lost your saltiness, you know what? There's good news, though. God can make you pure again. His blood can make you pure, and His Word is what keeps you poor. Stay in the Word. Spend time in the Word. Keep that purity. So, we should be dangerous disciples in the world. But too many believers are harmless to the devil's work. Too many Christians are like the dog a friend of mine told me about. One day he walked into a country store, and as he came in, there was a great big sign that says, Beware danger, beware of dog. My friend looked around cautiously, a little bit nervous, as you can imagine. But all he saw, all he saw was an old hound curled up on the floor, asleep. He said to the owner, that dog doesn't look dangerous to me. The owner said, well, folks kept tripping over him, so that's why I put the sign up. We are to be dangerous. We shouldn't be something people are tripping over. Are you a real disciple? Do you want to move from being in the congregation into the church? Do you need, do you need to move from the church into the core of committed people or committed disciples? Do you love Jesus more than anyone else, even your family? Are you a dead man walking, carrying your cross? Are you committed to finishing strong for Jesus? Are you constantly surrendering everything you have to Him? Are you willing to stay pure so that you can be sought in a rotting world? Jesus is looking for a few good men and women, the humble, the pure, the dead, the committed. Will you decide today to move from being a mere believer and make being a fully devoted follower of Jesus your goal? To do this, you must first have a right relationship to Jesus. 
To be a disciple, you must know the one that you serve. So I end with this question. Do you know Jesus? If you don't, I'll be here after the service and I'll be more than glad to discuss any issues or questions or that you might have or to explain to you that way that you can become a true Christian and how to know Jesus, the one you're called to be a disciple. Let us close in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for this time that we have had together in your house. And I pray, Father, that we would stop, be still, and reflect on the role that we are playing as your disciples. I ask that we would recommit ourselves, surrender ourselves, and place all the calling that you place on our lives above all else, and that we would truly be one that spreads the light of the world, our Lord and Savior. For it's in his precious name I pray. Amen. Thank you very much.